This is the podcast of the German Historical Institute London, a research centre dedicated to supporting and connecting students and scholars from Britain and Germany. The podcast series presents current research in British, German and European history, as well as colonial and global history. For more information on the German Historical Institute London, future events, the GHIL Library, studentships and more podcast episodes, please visit our website at ghil.ac.uk. Today's podcast episode is a GHIL lecture by Patrick Anthony, DAAD Prime Fellow at LMU Munich and the University of Cambridge, entitled Terrestrial Enlightenment, Ruin and Revolution in an 18th Century Climate Crisis. Some scholars and scientists identify the Enlightenment as an inflection point in the Anthropocene, the geological age in which humans have acted as a planetary force. In his lecture, Patrick Anthony suggests that this inflection point was characterized not only by new means and scales of environmental exploitation, but also by the emergence of climate politics. The naturalist Georg Forster provides a helpful itinerary through this time, from his study of hydraulics in the wake of the Saxony floods of 1784, to his death in Paris during the terror of 1794. On either side of the Rhine, resource management and disaster mitigation constituted political power. Thank you, Christine, for that extremely kind introduction. And thank you, Pascal, for the invitation to be here. It's really uh, an honor to be asked to contribute to this lecture period. As it happens, the material that I'm going to present today was published uh, last night, I believe, in an article in uh, the Journal of Social History with the same title, in case you're interested in following that up. So that means I can't change anything, of course, but. <laughs> I did also want to say that, uh, you know, indicated some of the themes I'll be talking about today, especially knowledge about changing climates, changing climates, and politics of that knowledge, are themes that I'm following in the larger book project, which takes different directions in this talk. So, I, all that's to say, really, here to give a feedback, critique, comments you have. So, the late 18th century was an age of climate crisis. The atmospheric chemist Paul Crutzen suggested 1784 as a probable start date for the end of the geologic age in which humans had a big planetary force. And he noted how increased levels of carbon dioxide and methane uh, coincide with James Watt's design of steam But the fossil fuel economy was only beginning its by no means inevitable path toward the climate emergency in which we now live. Environmental disaster took another form that year. In May and June of 1783, the eruption of Icelandic volcanoes sent a plume of ash So we're back in May and June of 1783. Icelandic volcanoes and eruption uh, sent a plume of ash across Europe, extended Set into North Africa and Central Asia. Uh, barometric records show the arrival of uh, an early arrival of a severe and snowy winter across Europe, with uncommon heat and persistent low pressure system. And still more threatening than cold alone, however, is the rapid fluctuation of cyclonic and cyclonic On February 24th, uh, warm southerly winds induced a sudden fog 
of the heavy snowfall and frozen rivers, unleashing massive floods in the river basins of Western and Central Europe. The deluge destroyed dikes, mills, and bridges across the continent, inundating cities from Brussels to Vienna. In the decade that followed, climatic extremes unfolded on a planetary scale with considerable influence on the age of revolutions. What Eric Hobsbawm described as the onset of a dual revolution in Europe's politico-industrial modernity might also be considered as a dual crisis in the socio-environmental order. So this means that while erratic climatic conditions exerted exceptional pressure on ruling powers, the threat of regime change was also bound up in disputes over resource management, disaster mitigation, and even anthropogenic climate change. So hailstorms uh, famously decimated the French grain economy in 1788 and 89, and a prolonged Caribbean drought gave way in the mid-1790s to malarial conditions that stifled European attempts to re-enslave Haiti's free Black citizens. But if climate acted on revolutions, it also acted through them, especially as Republican policies intensified the clearing of woodlands in France. The revolution elevated uh, widespread anxieties about timber shortages in Europe to a climatic concern as partisans blamed new and old regimes for the adverse effects of deforestation. And notably, the deregulation of forests, according to market principles, coincided in the 1790s with a growing association between denudation, soil erosion, and catastrophic flooding. If the Enlightenment was an inflection point in the Anthropocene, as several scholars suggest, I think it should account for how climate crises came to be seen, like other disasters, as political matters. So this lecture examines the development of climate politics in the 1780s and 90s. I'll focus on hydrology as a theater of material and discursive engagement with the era's most palpable climatic threat, flooding. And I want to propose a framework for understanding a broad assemblage of artifacts, environments, and imaginaries that I think constituted late 18th century climate politics, so what I'll call terrestrial enlightenment. At its core, terrestrial enlightenment is about how resource management and the mitigation of environmental disasters materialized political power. To do this, I'll make use of the rich archive compiled by the German naturalist Georg Forster. So Forster provides an itinerary uh, through this decade of dual crisis, from a study of Saxon hydraulics in the summer of 1784 to his death in Paris during the terror of 1794. Like forestry, water management became integral to statecraft after about 1750, marking the beginning of what David Blackburn described as a hydrological revolution in Germany and in Europe. And German waterways are precisely where Forster looked in the spring of 1784 when he traveled to the industrious tributaries of the Elbe and Saxony. And from Saxony amid ruin, the lecture follows Forster to the humbled waters of Flanders in 1790 and ultimately to revolutionary France. The flood of 1784 marked the confluence of climate politics and disaster culture. So while climate became 
in a sense, a measure of civility in the later 18th century, disasters shook and tested the durability of ruling powers. Around mid-century, climate was integrated into European political thought as the sum of atmospheric and environmental conditions, which were understood to determine the physiological, moral, and intellectual diversity among human societies. And by the 1790s, naturalists and statesmen in Europe increasingly saw a society's capacity to moderate climate as evidence of its preeminence. So naturalists believed that European civilization forestalled the cooling earth, and this view gained traction in the supposed wastelands of North America, for instance, where colonists read apparent warming trends as justification for the dispossession of indigenous populations. But the same logic that made climate a theater of power politics also meant that environmental disasters, earthquakes, storms, floods, or droughts, could pose a threat to the foundations of the state. As Marie-Hélène Huet has argued, the Enlightenment did not simply naturalize disasters. It also did away with the idea of a purely natural disaster and shifted responsibility from divine authorities to terrestrial authorities. So these currents really converge in Georg Forster's call, not for a social, but a natural contract. So in an essay in 1781, he wrote that man's government of nature is more indulgence than entitlement. So soon as he stops, everything languishes, decays, and transforms. All returns to the realm of nature. She reclaims her rights, obliterates the works of man, covers his proudest monuments with dirt and moss, destroys them entirely with the passage of time. This set the tone for the journal that Forster kept in the wake of the flood of 1784, which was also a study of the ephemerality of human forms and, and, and labor amid uh, ruinous natural forces. Traveling along the Elbe in Saxony, for instance, Forster witnessed the piteous state of a bridge ruined entirely by water and ice and crossed on a temporary barge. And this is really an iconic scene that spring among artists who depicted bridges destroyed by the flood. In Cologne, for instance, the Rhine overcame the city's 29-foot dikes, which is shown as an anomalous spike on this chart here in a hydrographic atlas at the very top. Eyewitnesses spoke of graveyards exhumed by the waters of the Elbe. Others described entire mills swept away, and some would call it the high water of the century. But according to a study in Saxony, it was truly a 283-year event, as the Elba hit high water marks unmatched since 1501. And this study belongs to a genre of diluvial chronicles uh, popular in Germany. And these chroniclers generally saw authoritarian government as an edifice capable of enduring ruin. Uh, German states paid increasing attention to coastal and inland floods after about 1750, as evidenced by the new scale of dike building and canalization projects. And one writer in, in Mannheim at the confluence of the Rhine and the Neckar included in his chronicle the uh, a 7.8 policy, which was decreed by the Bavarian Palatinate's benevolent father, Elector Karl Theodor, whose reign was already marked by infrastructural reform. Now, the electoral 
chamber dispensed with aid to those affected by the flood through special bureaucratic commissions without levying any extraordinary taxes, it was said. But it was his forestry administration that evoked the chronicler's most patriotic sentiments, even recalling the, in his words, the Germanic defense of the fatherland against Roman invaders. And so it was, it was in these terms he described the felling of royal forest reserves to provide firewood during this frigid winter of 1783 and 84, especially to people who lived along rivers and whose stockpiles were swept away. And, you know, according to these chroniclers, such forms of disaster relief were apparently, uh, apparently cultivated solidarity in the order of estates and inspired deference toward its paternalist authorities. Others read, different signs in the flood, some of them hinting at the widespread conflict caused by the exclusion of the peasantry from forests marked out for state-run industries or sold as a source of royal revenue. In the 1770s and 80s, meteorologists in Europe and in its colonies began to associate climatic variability with deforestation. So practical experts became increasingly sensitive to the relationship between the clearing of forests and the frequency and intensity of flooding events. And this raised one of the era's most pressing environmental questions. Were territorial states the root cause of deforestation and its hydroclimatic effects? Or did status programs of environmental stewardship guard their subjects against the worst of these evils? So an anonymous Bavarian writer for instance, elevated such questions to a general inquiry about the fate of, of society, which is, appears here much more fragile than the previous source admitted. He says, verily, this atrocity and desolation has dealt a heavy blow to the entire economic system. All the more reason it should spur us to industry and to frugality, this one true source of prosperity. Perhaps such a remedy is required of our age when civic spirit and craft zeal begin to dissipate by and by. So the precise remedy is left unsaid, but the passage identifies the flood as an event that not only impinges on the entire economic system, but which might be averted, in a, in a sense, by its reform. A frugal industry is just what Forster found enacted in the hydraulic works along the river Mulda, a tributary of the Elbe, which powered mining operations near Freiberg. So Forster surveyed scenes of disaster and durability in the Mulda basin. This is the Old Father's Aqueduct in Halsbrücke near Freiberg, which appeared to him as a testament to the region's well-tempered hydraulic economy poised above the mass of rock through which the Mulda violently forged its path, as he wrote in his journal. Built about a century beforehand, the picturesque archway of hewn stone appeared to Forster as a ruin in action, communicating the force necessary for the movement of the machines in distant mines. And in fact, travel handbooks from the period described this as a ruin even before it ceased to operate at the end of the century. And that's when artists came to embellish its decay and overgrowth. The production of Saxony's industrial antiquity belongs certainly to a wider engagement with ruins, in Nina Duben's words, less as remnants of a disappearing world than as proof of a precarious one. And precarity abounded in Halsbrücke as well. 
So from the aqueduct, Forrester turned to the, this monstrous chasm of a collapsed shaft on the slope above the Mulda. He said he shuddered at the terrible ruin which nature can bring upon the works of men, echoing the earlier passage. Pressure built upon the heaps of rock and the burrowed passages under the earth to carelessly framed cave-in, bringing death and desolation in its collapse, leaving behind not a single trace of their former industry. Coached by the hydraulic technician Johann Friedrich Mende, Forster described how new pumping engines might yet revive this mine and, and, as he said, free its depths of inundation. And this guide, Forster's guide, Mende, he was the Kunstmeister in Freiberg, as it was called, and he sought technical solutions to the problem of ruin. Specifically, his mechanics were designed to moderate the era's precipitation extremes. A newfangled water-saving pump, for instance, was to remedy the ever-increasing shortage of water power for the entire future. So like timber reserves meant to reinforce princely authority, hegemony over the Mulda watershed was to sustain that of the Saxon mining state. The electorate of Saxony faced ruin not only in the form of the 283-year flood, of course, but also in the economic devastation of the seven years. It suffered severe territorial and fiscal losses to Frederick II's Prussia. And so the elector looked, for instance, to a reformed mining bureaucracy to restore order. And it's in this context that Mendes' mechanics were said to herald a new epoch of hydraulic energy in the face of timber shortages, high coal prices, and climatic variability. As Joachim Bradkow wrote, by the 18th century, European politics in general acquired a hydraulic dimension. Mendes' management of what he called the hydraulic economy rested in his exclusive claim to regulatory powers echoing the priority claimed by state foresters. In both cases, officials leveraged the long-term interests of the state, what foresters called sustainability, and what Mende called durability or dauerhaftigkeit, to justify the stewardship of resources that commoners and private industry might otherwise pillage or divert into scarcity. Rivers crowded with mills like forests coveted for fuel may not have suffered the ecological emergency that states used to broaden their jurisdiction, but they certainly signaled a regulatory crisis among competing interests. So the proliferation of new water pumps and wheel-driven stamp mills under Mendes' administration entailed a still greater distribution of the Mulda's increasingly irregular flow through an expansive network of canals and underground tunnels. Uh, this new hydraulic landscape corresponded also to a new hydraulic politics, a water tax to regulate the use of water in Freiberg, and it instituted a new metric for hydraulic flows quantified in the unit of a rod, uh, the, you know, the amount required to turn a wheel, and so imposed a machine-like regularity on Saxon watersheds. Forster thought Mendes' regulatory program most clearly manifest in this weir shown here, uh, installed and the waterworks associated with it, installed downstream of Halsbrücke. So here he's accompanied again by Menda. He studied the art by which he had attempted to moderate hydroclimatic extremes. And against the wider backdrop of ruin, he marveled at the steadfast weir, which Menda designed to endure seasonal floods and ice flows. And the edifice also was meant to concentrate the flow of the river into a narrow channel, which powered 
several hydraulic pumps and presses. Mende described it in this plan as a fortress perpetually assailed by floods and ice. And the fortress was flanked by what he called bulwarks, meant to maintain the integrity of the Muldus banks. And you can also see on that note on the left of that journal page, Forster's drawing of these bulwarks, which he said were meant to manage the maelstrom of water. As Mendes said, in hydraulic engineering on rivers, one must always expect that an unexpected flood will destroy in a day what can hardly be built in a month. By the close of the century, however, Mendes' works were scrutinized precisely for their lack of frugal industry. There's an article titled Pride and Project Addiction, which described Mende as one who, quote, loved neither true order nor frugality nor economy in his private life as in his professional duties. And so another of his works installed in 1788 seemed to this critic a monument to Mende's arrogance. And just then, at this time, revolutions began to spread through France and the Austrian Netherlands, and ultimately across the Rhine to where Forster relocated in Mainz. And there he too began to articulate a new politics of fluid energy. All the wheels and engines of the old forms have ceased to operate, Forster wrote his wife, the writer Teresa Heine from Mainz in July 1791. The ignorant nobleman must yield to the better, still more noble middle class, for he lacks the energy to sustain its usurpation. So the problem of defunct wheels and engines beset by irregular water supply, so clearly exhibited in the Mulde Basin, furnished Forster with an image of social upheaval. But as we've seen, the capacity to sustain energy flows and regulate hydroclimatic extremes was also materially linked to sovereignty. Hydraulic power was political power. The flow, as Andreas Malm has described, the fluctuation of wind and water systems on which the pre-industrial economy relied, grew increasingly volatile amid the climatic extremes of the 1780s. Uh, Richard Grove has done amazing work on how El Nino events exerted climatic stresses on Europe and elsewhere in the world until at least 1794. And at the same time, proponents of economic liberalization argued that feudal hydraulics had constrained Europe's rivers and damaged its climate. And this claim mirrored the early revolutionary critique of the old regime's timber-devouring iron industries. As Simon Schaffer writes, land drainage, the fate of marshland, canal designs, and the use of pumps to drive irrigation canals as well as mills became key issues in the revolutionary struggle. Traveling down the Rhine in 1790, Forster pursued a comparative study of revolutions in already afoot in the Low Countries. And while he's critical of the Brabant Revolution, he was sympathetic toward the freer constitution that he found in Flanders, describing a more equitable allocation of parliamentary votes. And this corresponded in his writing to the reclamation and canalization projects that characterized the landscape there. The Flemish coast, of course, had witnessed what he called fell catastrophes in the form of extraordinary floods. As in 1784, though, scenes of diluvial wreckage made Flemish arts of, of endurance and hydraulics still more noteworthy, he thought. So he traveled by bark along canals to Antwerp on the estuary of the Scheld. And as he departed the city for the North Sea, he described seeing white 
sails on the river of you know fluid commerce coming into view and remarked upon 20-foot tides which had been tempered by steadfast city walls and in fact when the Sheldon and its tributaries flooded in 1784 causing devastation upstream newspapers in Antwerp reported neither damage nor casualties as Forster wrote in 1790 we beheld its humbled waters and we drew a new breath of European politics and the law of European nations so in drawing that breath, Forster rhapsodized what events in France had already realized. Revolution was as much a climatic event as natural disaster was a political one. By 1789, the destruction caused by extreme weather in France compounded the fiscal debt crisis of the old regime, leading to food shortages, bread riots, and revolution. And contemporaries became sensitive to the intricate relationship between regime change and climate change. Hydroclimatic imagery, in particular, acknowledged the environmental forces acting on and through the revolution, from the erratic precipitation of the 1780s to the climatic fallout of forest deregulation in the revolutionary state. So the state came to be seen by some, including Forster, in a sense as a state of climate precarity. As the Elba's high water marks were battered again in 1785 and 86, drought in France led to severe losses of livestock, while the return of a long winter and wet spring in 87 and 88 caused grain prices to increase roughly 50%. And the following winter was reminiscent of 84, with deep cold punctuated by sudden thaws. From mines in January 1789, Forster warned a friend downstream in Dusseldorf of the chance of a nasty visit from Father Rhine. The severe cold sent quake-like tremors through the ground, Forster wrote, as the frozen Rhine portended terrific ice flows. Here the people who live along the river are already clearing the ground floors of their homes. Though he found it hard to fathom another year quite like 1784. Arguably, the French Revolution began as an upheaval against the old environmental order. The early months of 1789 saw mass rebellion against hunting laws and royal restrictions on forest resources. Popular hostility toward wood-fueled industries also garnered support for the revolution, which initially promised to reduce the strain of the Bourbon war state, which it had long exerted on French forests. But the new environmental order was riven with many of the same conflicts as the old. The crop failures and fuel scarcity that had galvanized support for the National Assembly in 1789 also produced considerable tension within the Young Republic proclaimed in 1792. And food shortages that winter were compounded by inflation and war requisitions fueling radical politics in Paris. And the Jacobin Assembly doubled down at this point on its free trade principles, deregulating the water and forest jurisdiction that it saw as institutions of absolutism and seigneurial privilege. So far from resolving the regulatory crisis of the late 18th century, revolution unleashed a greater scale of exploitation in the name of economic liberalism. A 1791 law curtailed the authority that state foresters once held over private landowners, whose hands were strengthened again through legislation in 1793, which privatized common lands and forests. 
And at the same time, the outbreak of war and the demand it placed on iron foundries allowed state miners to seize forests in the name of the national destiny. This presaged that the enormous energy demands of the imperial war state of the Napoleonic era. The ensuing deforestation raised the specter not only of wood shortages, but also of the atmospheric impact of denudation. So agriculturalists and engineers decried these new forest policies as a violent disruption to meteorological systems. Practically speaking, they argued that deforestation would dehumidify and unsettle the soil, exposing populations who lived on riversides to possibly to unprecedented erosion and flooding. As historian Noel Plack observes, a National Assembly species described an unmitigated environmental disaster in the countryside. And yet many assembly members echoed old regime magistrates in blaming an ungovernable, thieving peasantry rather than the policy shift toward a market economy. So it's in this legislative and ecological sense that I mean the French Republic had become a state of climate precarity. As Forster put it, revolution is a natural phenomenon. Forster was sent to Paris at the end of March 1793 as a delegate of the fledgling Mines Republic, established under the auspices of the French army. And so he arrived amid the acute inflationary and ecological crisis in the French Republic as it faced war within and outside of its borders. By April, the moderate Girondin party was purged from government, and Forster wrote, Conflagration and deluge, the noxious effects of fire and water, are nothing compared to the calamity that reason will soon cause. April also saw the theater of the War of the First Alliance shift to mines, and by June, a coalition of German and Austrian batteries reduced the city to rubble and wreckage, as the poet Goethe described the scene of smoking ruin. Goethe shared this sense of revolution as a cataclysmic natural force. He had earlier been a mining official in the Duchy of Weimar, so he knew the terrible potential of the flow, especially as anxieties about timber shortages were combined in the 1790s with observations about flooding caused by deforestation, especially on mountain slopes. After the turn of the century, Goethe described a memoir of the revolution accordingly in these terms. He says it gives a monstrous prospect of brooks and streams, which of necessity descend from many heights, rushing into a confluence that finally bursts the banks of a great river and produces an inundation that lays waste to him who foresaw it, just as it destroys him who suspected nothing. So Goethe had learned to, quote, always expect an unexpected flood, as Mendes words, during his own ill-fated attempt to revive silver mines, which were flooded in the Duchy of Weimar. And on February 24th, 1784, this is the day I began the talk, the day a deep cold, cold spell broke into catastrophic flooding. Goethe addressed a crowd of notables in Weimar, and he commemorated a newly opened shaft by, quote, committing those already inundated mines forever to water and darkness. And so he read the revolution much as miners looked at denuded slopes and floodplains as a foreseeable but inexorable a hydroclimatic event here. When Forster undertook his own account of the revolution in the fall and winter of 1793, he also used this hydrosocial language. 
I said, in vain did those swept up in this maelstrom attempt to regulate themselves according to reason. With this, he began a set of sketches, the first dated one Brumaire, second year of the Republic. The Republican calendar is itself an attempt to align the state with predictable celestial and atmospheric cycles, as if to somehow shield the revolution from storms and disaster, as Huet has written. The month of Brumaire, for instance, was named for the fog typical in France in late October and early November, and it was allegorized, as you can see, by a shepherdess returning from pasture carrying a bundle of firewood as cold wind gathers laden clouds. It's so cold that I can hardly warm myself in bed, Forster complained to Heine already at the end of September. But one simply cannot heat oneself in a city where a cord of wood costs 130 leave. By the winter of 93-94, the Jacobin dictatorship had executed much of its opposition. Forster's maelstrom changed with the season. Revolution became an avalanche, annihilating all that resists its path. So the inundations and ice flows chronicled in 1783 and 84 appeared again a decade later in this political form. Terrestrial enlightenment made out to moderate ruinous forces, whether human or natural. But the technical and political means by which it sought those ends sometimes brought new extremes in the process. The new order in France apparently threatened climate disaster on a scale unseen in the old environmental order. Forster did not weather the storm, however, as he called the revolution by December 1793. He fell ill that month after walking across the city, unable to find a coach. And he writes, I'm not worried about the illness, only frightened that the season and the cold, damp winter weather will make me miserable and cripple me into the new year. And he died on January 10th. Coming to a close here. So of the public debt crisis that beset urban monarchy, itself described as a deluge, Michael Zonenscher observes that the imminence of disaster could be seen as an opportunity to establish a regime that could face the possibility of Armageddon in a way that no actually existing system of government might be able to do. And I've argued that environmental disasters functioned similarly. So this lecture has shown some of the ways in which climate became constitutive of late 18th century politics. The deluge of 1784 spurred some chroniclers to reinforce the old order. Mendes saw drought and deluge as threats to the Dauerhaftigkeit of the state itself. Others began to ponder new forms of terrestrial politics and reform. The poet William Cowper believed the events of 84 signaled the need of social intercourse, benevolence and peace and mutual aid between the nations in a world that seems to toll the death bell of its own decease. Our own age of crisis has inspired a similar stance among humanists who theorize the Anthropocene as the basis of a planetary solidarity. In Dipesh Chakrabarty's formulation, Anthropocene suggests a new universal grounded in our collective capacity to affect and be affected by the global climate. So in closing, I, I want to suggest that the way climate became a political matter at the turn of the 19th century is linked to the scale and the urgency of the climate crisis today. Certainly European states responded to the dual crisis with increased attention to resource management and flood mitigation, emblematic of the 19th century's audacious hydrological projects, it was the remaking of the Rhine 
his floodplains engineers fixed into a single more navigable, supposedly less flood-prone riverbed. But if correcting rivers, as they said, made floods less frequent, it also made them more violent. Forster's own writings presaged another characteristic feature of European climate politics. Writing from the Rhineland in 1790, he warned of the total exhaustion of wood and coal resources and the failure of hydraulic solutions. Europeans, he imagined, would be forced to flee the lands of ice and fog as climate refugees in today's terms, leaving it completely denuded and uninhabitable. This prophecy also implied new forms of planetary domination. For the refugees who fled the hunger and cold in Europe were also colonial aggressors, poised, as he wrote, to flow in great heaps across the barbaric parts of the world and conquer or expel the inhabitants of Asia, Africa, and the Middle East. So the passage indicates how the restorationist programs, which have shown implemented in Europe's forests and floodplains, were also redeployed in aggressive colonial schemes, supposedly justified by environmental stewardship, as many uh, important histories are beginning to document. So in this sense, too, the Rhineland forecast was horrifically accurate in that it portended global systems of resource plunder. So ultimately, the legacy of this terrestrial enlightenment is the ruin in which we live. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the German Historical Institute London podcast. Follow us on social media and check our website to keep up to date with new episodes.